Good morning to everyone. So good to be together. And uh, it is a special Sunday. This is, of course, um, not really as much a, a highlighting of a particular ministry as it is a thank you to our congregation who has really been used of the Lord in this great privilege that we have of training future pastors, as Todd Murray said earlier, training future pastors. What a great privilege this is for us. Uh, the colors, of course, of our logo are blue and gold, so I wore my uh, Expositor Seminary tie. just wanted you to know that. I rarely show off on, on that, you know, but on this occasion for the seminary, we'll do that. And uh, interestingly enough, when it comes to training our pastors, uh, the, the thing that I've loved most is that when we got together, oh, num- 10 years ago now, probably 12 years ago in Orlando with a group of pastors in the state to talk about what was on our hearts with respect to training, um, we brought our thoughts back to our respective ministries And the thing that I was thrilled about most, not necessarily surprised, but it warmed my heart immensely, was that when we presented the idea to you that God might give us the privilege of doing that, uh, the, the collective response was, are you kidding me that God would allow us something like that here in this corner of evangelicalism, this ministry, this seemingly, in our minds, insignificant work uh, compared to many others? And the reason that that warmed my heart is because it, it demonstrated really the way that uh, God had worked in our midst to make us useful. And I've often thought how much we need that perspective because the days ahead for us in ministry, whether it's you taking your gospel influence to your circle of friends and family and spheres, or whether it's us training and sending off somebody and their family so that they might go plant churches and make for exponential ministry, I've often thought we're going to need the perspective that this is immense privilege, undeserved, and we need encouragement in it. We don't depend upon ourselves. The reason it's a privilege is because it's given to us. What do you have that you didn't receive from the Lord? And so if you have received it, why do you act, he told the Corinthians, as if you didn't receive it? This is essential passion for usefulness, if you will. And it's fitting that we find ourselves in Luke 10 for this morning as we're covering some very important ground when the Lord has sent 70 out into the surrounding areas. I mean, this is absolutely radical. In Luke 9, he'd sent the 12 out with specific instructions and authority and even miraculous power to attend the message. And here we find in chapter 10, just a bit later, The Lord Jesus appoints 70, and he does the same thing. He sends them out, and he gives them some marching orders, some instruction, some encouragement, the kinds of things you and I need. Look, if this is going to get difficult, even for the training of pastors, we're going to be marked out for training and replicating what we are and what we believe. That isn't going to sit well in our culture in the coming days. We have talked often about that. Why is that so critical? Because you notice when Jesus is training disciples and sending them, you notice when those disciples train others and send them, there are these constant encouragements, things like, hey, I told you this was going to happen before it happens, so that when it comes to pass, you already know. Hey, I want you to be strong in the grace that's in Christ Jesus, because this is 
what you're going to face. Hey, you're not greater than your master. You, it's enough that you become like your master, and so if they hated me, they're going to hate you. Even in the same discussion of the language of Luke 10 that Matthew records, he says that very thing. They are going to hunt you down. They're going to come after your family members. Your family members are going to turn you in. All of that is to come in various seasons of gospel ministry until we meet the Lord. Now, we haven't identified with much of that yet, but it's coming. We've talked about that. We need encouragement because it doesn't matter who you are. It doesn't matter how long you've been doing this. It doesn't matter how long you've been in Christ, and it doesn't matter how long you think we have left. It doesn't matter how close you think we are to Christ's coming. The tendency is that as pressure increases, our ministry profile has a bigger target on its back, and our tendency is to shy away dumb the message down, weaken what God calls us to do, maybe get sidelined. God sends us to a place we don't really want to go there. The path of least resistance is over here, and so we'd, we'd rather be on that. Even wishing for something to distract us from what will surely bring us more trouble. We need that. Even Paul needed that. There were times when he was under the hardship of gospel ministry, he despaired even of life. Other times, he would have to say to Timothy, in 2 Timothy, he mentions, hey, Timothy, don't be ashamed of the gospel or of me, his prisoner. It's prisoner. Don't, don't be ashamed of the fact that I'm your friend and I commissioned you to the gospel, but I'm in prison and they've shelved me and they're going to behead me. Don't be ashamed of that. Get after it because the Lord has not given us an inner life of fear, but of boldness and power and strength. So he says to him in 2 Timothy 2 verse 1, be strong in the grace that is in Christ Jesus. And then he says, suffer hardship with me as a good soldier. No soldier in active service entangles himself in the affairs of everyday life that he may please the one who enlisted him as a soldier. Look, Timothy, you're, is it, did you think it wasn't going to be battle? This is encouragement. This is preparation. This is a reminder. This is coming alongside one another. I need that. You need that. Times are coming. Days are coming. You need that. I need that. It's not going to be easy. And so what Jesus does here when he sends the 70 out is instructive. In fact, there's just two basic principles that rise out of the first seven verses. Really, verse 3 through verse 7. So we've already covered verses 1 and 2 of Luke 10. But follow along as I read 3 through 12, and then we'll just sort of hone in on 3 to 7 with two very simple but absolutely essential principles. So Jesus had just said, beseech the Lord of the harvest to send out laborers into his harvest. And then verse 3, go, behold, I send you out as lambs in the midst of wolves. Carry no money belt, no bag, no shoes. Greet no one on the way. Whatever house you enter, first say, peace be to this house. If a man of peace is there, your peace will rest on him. And if not, it'll return to you. Stay in that house, eating and drinking what they give you, for the laborer is worthy of his wages. Do not keep moving from house to house. 
Whatever city you enter and they receive you, eat what's set before you and heal those in it who are sick and say to them, the kingdom of God has come near to you. And whatever city you enter and they do not receive you, go out into its streets and say, even the dust of your city, which clings to our feet, we wipe off in protest against you. Yet be sure of this, know this, that the kingdom of God has come near. I say to you, it will be more tolerable in that day for Sodom than for that city. So, the Lord is giving encouragements to the 70 to set them up for what is to come. It is, if we were to just sort of generally categorize the, the overall drive of this message, it is that the gospel includes great privilege, as we saw last time. This is a ministry of high honor, a ministry by proxy. The world doesn't notice it as honorable. In fact, the world says that the, the apostles were the dregs of all things. You're the offscouring, the bottom, the scum to the world. And the disciples and the 70 sent out and then all the way down to us, those who are in the gospel and saved by Christ, we go out into a world that is going to say the same thing. You're nothing. But Jesus said it's the highest honor. It's a ministry by proxy. Jesus sends and he sends those as ambassadors. This is great privilege. If we were to just sort of give it a second overarching drive and that is that it is flat out perilous and dangerous until we meet Christ. It is dangerous. So, he's just going to lay out an encouragement here in two principles. Number one, prepare yourself for gospel enemies. Prepare yourself for gospel enemies. Verse three, go, behold... <laughs> I send you out as lambs in the midst of wolves. Now stop right there. It just absolutely halts us. Wait a minute, Jesus, the merciful one, the caring one, the one who's tender with his lambs. What in the world are you doing here? I send you out as lambs, my sheep, into a pack of wolves. Lord, what are you doing here? Well, there's reality here, stark reality. First of all, everything about the gospel commanded here invites hostility, everything about it. Notice, first of all, the boldness of it, go. I want you going. The gospel is bold in that it is urgent, right? You, you and I were saved not to sit Saved not to do nothing, saved not to get distracted, saved not to build and amass barns here. We were saved to go. Whatever our sphere of influence, it is immediate motion, go mode. That invites trouble. <laughs> that invites trouble right from the start. Why? Because Jesus said the harvest is plentiful, the workers are few, plead with the Lord to send out workers. Well, guess what? When we go, we're telling lost people, hey, by the way, judgment is imminent and you have a great need. Well, in John 9, when Jesus was talking to the man he just healed of blindness and the Pharisees were standing around, Jesus had just healed the man of blindness and talked about how he was here to open 
spiritual eyes and to clear up spiritual blindness. What did the Pharisees say? We're not blind too, are we? Are you suggesting we're blind? Are you suggesting we have a need? I'd say that doesn't go over well with someone who wants to ignore what's coming. So already, Jesus is preparing his disciples for gospel enemies by saying, go, and when you go, that implies an urgency about the need. You're going to meet up with blind people and it is going to be hostile. And notice there's a resolution to it. No hesitation. I want you to go now. That's the implication of this language. Go now. No hesitation. You're in a long line of saved and sent people. You're going to be passing the baton to another generation of saved and sent people. We're resolved. We're not hesitant. This is the reason we live and breathe. We're not jogging. We're not walking. We're not dragging our feet. (laughs) We're not even coming over here, standing in the corner and wishing there was some other way. Sometimes we'd like to do that. Sometimes our flesh would like to do that, but you're not. The resolve of the gospel, once you came to Christ, was that you wouldn't hesitate when God opened up an opportunity. You'd go. You'd get up every day and say, Lord, I'm at work. I'm going to work. I've got a tough job. I've got bills to pay. I've got pressures on my job. But I am a light in the midst of darkness. You've said go. I'm in go mode. And that's going to invite hostility, but I do not want a hesitant heart. So whatever comes, I know you've commanded me to go. And I know that means I'm to be resolved with conviction. And that's going to invite hostility because I will not stop. I will keep speaking. I remember working in the, when I was in the United States Air Force, the crew chief there and all those people around, all these pagans and Every day, I mean, they were stuck with me. I was stuck with them. I didn't want to be around their worldliness, and they certainly didn't want to be around the stuff I wanted to talk about. But there we were in the military, stuck. You can't go anywhere. I'm sure they were applying like crazy to be transferred to some other site, some other facility. Nope. Every day, I would be driving, riding to the, on my motorcycle to the office, and I would say, now, Lord... I don't know what's going to come today. I do know this. It's going to be hostile to some degree. Maybe even my crew chief, who's an agnostic, he's just going to bring it. And I'm going to want to hesitate. In fact, when I walk in there and I see them all, and then when I walk in, they stare, and, oh, you know, he's coming. Can I just serve him? Just give me a heart to serve. Don't let me be hesitant. So let me go forward at that family outing. Let me go forward with that person who needs Christ. Just pray for them. They may not want to hear me. I'm not going to force myself on them. But let me pray. This, This is going to invite hostility, and Jesus prepares them by just saying, go. I don't want you to be hesitant. There's urgency. There's resolution. It's even proactivity. The gospel moves forward. It doesn't stagnate. It's not static. It confronts. Listen, you yourself are a gospel lightning rod just by virtue of the fact that you're in Christ. And that's why when you are the light, it can't be hidden. You put it on the lampstand. You light up wherever you are. You can't hide it. You try to hide it, and God's going God's to expose it. He's going to show you to be his child, and he's going to chasten you, and he's going to make you a brighter light, and he's going to put you in dark places, whether you like it or not. He's got to teach you that he didn't save you to sit. He saved you to go. You're in go mode. The gospel also has ultimate authority. I love this. 
Jesus says, I send you out. I don't need anything more than that. You know, tonight's ordination, we lay the hands on these guys. It's Grace Emmanuel Bible Church, the body of Christ, the leaders, and we're all affirming their character, but it's not us sending them out. That would be disastrous if they went to their foreign field or their church this side of the ocean and ministered somewhere. If they thought they had to rely on me or John Anderson or other staff or elders or even somebody here, a group, a Bible study, if they thought that was the authority with which they spoke, hey, I went to this great church in South Florida, and on behalf of them, I'm telling you this. That's not going to get him anywhere. That won't get him anywhere. You need what Matthew 28 says in the Great Commission. I have been given all authority over all souls and the entire universe. So go and make disciples. That's all I need. And so that's going to invite trouble because I'm in go mode. It is resolved, it is proactive, it is confrontive, not attitudinally confrontive, but the light itself in the darkness is confrontive. And when they say to me, on what basis do you say it? Jesus, the authority of the one risen from the dead, the only authority over every soul, the one you're going to have to face. That's the base on which I say it. So you're telling me that everyone outside of Christ, everyone in every religion who's sincere but outside of Christ is going to hell. I'm not telling you that. I am telling you what Jesus said, and he has ultimate authority. You think they're going to like that? They're not going to like that. You're not going to be invited back to the interview, the talk show. Or you might be invited to a talk show where they can really roast you. It's all right. All authority. Jesus sends you. And then notice the intrinsic opposition. Behold. (laughs) This is language that is intended to say this is a stunning shock. I am sending you as lambs in the midst of wolves. This is great imagery, beloved. This is great imagery. Don't you ever imagine that as one of Jesus' sheep that you are anything other than dependent upon him, utterly and totally dependent upon his protection, his guidance, his provision, and if he puts your neck under the knife, then that's what he does. He, you are still his sheep. You are still one of his lambs. And he sends you and tells you that he's doing it. He's sending you out in the midst of the wolves. See, why would he do that? Why would he make me so shockingly vulnerable? Why would he make me a prey to the predator? The language here is great. Wolves are vicious, savage. They're described that way in Matthew 7. They're described that way in Philippians 3. They're wolves. They're savages. They are pack hunters. What's a lamb? (laughs) Well, you know, vulnerable. No protective mechanism except to run and even run off a cliff to its death. Um, no self-resources, no, no self-preserving. They have a preserving instinct, but it often leads to peril. They need shepherds. That's the whole point. Jesus says, I'm sending you. I personally am sending you with authority into the midst of pack hunters who are going to hunt you down and take your life. Matthew 10, when he records these words, that's exactly what Jesus says to them. Family's going to turn you in. They're going to hunt you down. Whatever the season of your culture is in, whether the gospel is received or not, 
You just need to prepare yourself for this. I'm sending you out to be totally and utterly dependent upon me. You know, when you think about the predator-prey language Jesus uses here, it's, it's just interesting to think about where the gospel wouldn't go if we had written the script. Think about it. Would King Agrippa have ever heard the gospel from the Apostle Paul himself and therefore at the judgment seat have to answer for that? No, because Paul was a gospel minister to the Gentiles. He's not going to get involved in the high levels of politics when, when he would have had to have been corrupt to do it. So now that he's saved, he can't be morally corrupt, so he's not going to make his way up the channel. How are those great people going to hear the gospel? Sometimes God raises up a Christian and gets him into some serious trouble, not of his own doing, and puts him right in front of him. I've often thought, how in the world was a magistrate ever going to hear, a judge ever going to hear the gospel if we don't get dragged in by false accusations to some court? We don't deserve it, but they don't like us, and they slander us and drag you into court. For what? Oh, you know what we pray. Lord, this is so unjust. This is so unjust. Take me out of this. And the Lord keeps saying, well, I I will, but you need to finish the job. Give the gospel to that lawyer. I don't know how many times I shared the gospel with an attorney involved in an adoption case in our family, among our kids. And you know, it was, it was a devastating several months of legal wrangling that we didn't want, we didn't invite. It was somebody trying to slander it and, and ruin the whole deal. And, and clearly Satan behind it all to try to take the gospel away from these precious little lives that God wanted to pluck out of their place and put them in a gospel-rich environment in our family. And you know, we're dragged into these day-long deals, and then you got to watch your kids go before these attorneys, and they're ruthless, and they're shredding them and making them out to be people lacking integrity. Why all that? I remember my daughter sitting there talking, and we just said, well, how's that judge, and those, how are those attorneys going to hear the truth? I don't know how many times we've shared the gospel with our attorney. That hospital visit that you find inconvenience. Maybe you'll get released from the hospital if you just get the job done and preach the gospel to the nurse. You know? And there's other gospel ministry. I mean, the the point is, path of least resistance, we would choose. We wouldn't be lambs in the midst of wolves, but God takes us there because light shines in the darkness. I'm not going near darkness voluntarily or in my own human resources, but God puts us there. He puts us there. And so it invites hostility. It has intrinsic opposition. 2 Corinthians 6, what harmony has Christ with Satan? What what synergy has darkness and light? They're, They're polar diametric opposites. What did we expect? Even from the beginning, when sin entered the world, you must understand the profound nature of darkness. You cannot live the Christian life without confronting darkness, or you would lose the memory of it. You'd want to. You got to come to Scripture and see the grotesque, hideous nature of sin. You've got to be exposed to it in your own weakness. You got to go before the Lord and see the desperation of the battle, and you have to see it in the world. You got to face it, or the light will never hit the darkness in the world. You wouldn't choose all those things on your own, neither would I. And Jesus says, That's why I'm sending you as lambs in the midst of wolves, because I'm saving some of the wolves. I'm saving my lambs, and they're out there. And you're it. You're the light. 
I've put enmity between your seed and her seed. Genesis 3.15. First Peter chapter 5. What does it say? Your adversary, the devil. What does that mean? That, that Satan follows me around as my personal adversary? No, his system, his evil system. He's not omnipresent. I mean, he might hang around your life if it's bright enough. But his whole evil system is all darkness, all schemes, all demons, all minions trying to get at the effectiveness of your life. Peter says, your adversary runs around seeking someone to devour like a lion, the height of its hunger and ferocity. Jesus says to the 70, I'm sending you out with my authority. I want you to be bold, urgent, resolved, proactive, go mode, and I don't want you to hesitate. And here's the deal. You have my authority. Depend upon me. Trust me. You've got to go into the darkness. So what's that mean for Grace Emanuel Bible Church? We're just a little old ministry here in our slice of the culture. Yeah, just wait. It's coming. And in your families, you've seen it. You've seen sin destroy family members and children and grandchildren and co-workers and people who profess Christ but got caught up in the world. And you've seen what Satan does to people who otherwise could have heard the gospel, but he blinds them. And You've seen your own heart. You've seen what it took to save you. God had to reach into your darkness. So principle number one is prepare for it. Principle number two, as we finish here, principle number two is entrust yourself to divine providence. Entrust yourself to divine providence in this sense. Be dependent, undistracted, and utterly persuaded that God is doing His work. Notice verse 4, carry no money belt, no bag, no shoes. That's the dependent part. You remember in uh, Luke 9, he told the apostles the same thing, and I want you to prepare on this particular journey. Later, he will tell them, look, when I get arrested and I, I'm going to the cross, you're going to need some supplies because they're coming and they're going to hunt you down. You need some supplies to sustain that until I send the Holy Spirit. Certainly until I'm resurrected and visit you, and then when I ascend, I want you to go wait in the upper room, and then I'm going to send the Holy Spirit, and he's going to take care of you and meet your needs while you do my bidding. But on this occasion, he's saying, no, you've got to be tested in whether or not you depend upon me. And so he sends out the seven, he says, don't get all attached to material supplies and comfort here. Don't do that. And these would be the typical items. Don't, don't take your money belt. Don't take your savings. <laughs> don't do it. And he's not saying you shouldn't have a savings. We live in a different gospel time, a different gospel era. What he is saying is you should never trust in a stockpile you've set up, because you know what? You start trusting in that, mm, what happens when the world, by some technological means, just takes it from you because you're a Christian? So can they have a right to do that? Evil is evil. Christianity will be hated. Who knows? The point is, if you're trusting in it, you're gonna be tested in that moment. He says to them, don't take your savings, no extra bag with extra stuff in it, and no shoes. He's not saying you have to go barefoot. He's saying the extra shoes you would take, like you're going to set up some, some sort of place to stay for a long time. One pair of shoes, we've got just a few months, we're heading to Jerusalem, let's get it done. 
Don't be taking a bunch of extra stuff. That's going to slow us down. I want you to depend upon me. It's exactly what he told the apostles. This instruction would be no different. Utter dependence. I'll take care of you. I've got my network of people out there. Whatever I've called you to do, and until I end it by taking your life or ending your gospel ministry, you just go. Totally trust me. And notice undistracted. I mean, verse 4 sounds impolite. Greet no one on the way. Uh, Sorry, sorry. sorry, I can't can't touch you right now. I mean, he's not saying be impolite to people. He's saying, I don't want anything or anyone distracting you from what I've sent you to do. Go to the city, prepare it, throw the seed, find out who's receiving me and who's not, come back and report to me. I'm going to keep doing this until we make it to Jerusalem. You could be tempted toward a path of least resistance. You could be tempted toward a friendship, toward a relationship that's going to distract you from what I've called you to do. Isn't that so true? Here we are, 2,000 years of gospel ministry later, and still, we have to be reminded, even in a larger principle sense, that we have to go before the Lord and say, Lord, what have you asked me to do in my sphere of influence? Me. My level of equipping, my level of discipleship, the church I go to, the disciples I have, the responsible souls in my care, my understanding of God's word, what have you called me to do where I go? From my house to here and back and over to church and over to ministry and over to school and over to my job, what have you called me to do? And if there's anything in between there, between me and the goal, that is all about my wanting comfort and a lack of a path of least resistance, Jesus says, I don't, I don't want you getting distracted with those things. Stay in the zone of what I've called you to do and do not trust in those things. Enjoy what you enjoy, but do not trust in those things. Do not depend on those things. Do not let them steal the time that I've given you. Do not allow them to become, to use Hebrews 12's language, excess baggage. Don't allow that. Be dependent. Be undistracted. And notice verse 5 and 6. Be convinced or persuaded, really. Whatever house you enter, first say, peace be to this house. That's your gospel message. The peace of Christ be on this house. This isn't a general greeting. We know that because he says, if a man of peace is there, your peace rests on him. The message you have, the message of the gospel, you go in with it, it's obvious in every relationship you have who you are. You're not hidden. You're in go mode. Yes, you're working with your coworkers. Yes, you're with your professors and your, and your schoolmates. Yes, you're with your family. You're over there at the, the booster club or whatever it is you do, you're in there, but your life and your message are obvious out front because you're persuaded. You are a persuasive life a holy life, a bright light, and when you're asked to speak to issues of the day, matters in the culture, wisdom that's needed, you speak truth wisely, enough so that unbelievers know, man, you have an agenda. You have a life that's out front that is strange, and I don't know if I'm attracted to it or irritated to it, but something drives you. I mean, in your life, does anybody ever imagine that you are different about anything? Ethically, morally, what you say, how you deal with politics, how you deal with culture, 
what you do in your life, how you spend your money, where you go. Does anyone ever imagine that you're different at all except that every once in a while your car's in this parking lot? Here's his point. When you go into a town, you're so persuaded with the truth, you go to the first place you see that will invite you in. Because your life and your message are obvious, I bring the peace of the gospel of Christ. If there's a man who's a God-fearer or someone who readily receives what you say, man, your peace rests on that home. What does that mean? Staging for gospel ministry in that place. You have a disciple. You get to disciple him. You get to stage a ministry there. You get to raise up a disciple so that he can go raise up somebody else while you go do more ministry on your way to Jerusalem with Christ. What does it mean if he's not a man of peace, if the leader of the home or those in the home don't come to Christ, it'll return to you? It means it's not a waste. It's not wasted effort. You shouldn't imagine that you now, having seen how people respond, get to tailor-make the way you do ministry to get the greatest response, to manufacture the greatest interest. You don't do that. The peace of Christ is always with you. You can't lose it. And when you throw it out there and somebody rejects it, it's not a waste. That's what you're called to do. What is Jesus' point? He doesn't want you imagining that that you know how to direct ministry because of what you've seen in the responses of men and women. No, no, you don't have to do that. If you go in, your life in light are obvious, your message is clear, people know you offer Christ, you live for Christ, and somebody receives it, now you have a disciple. Somebody doesn't receive it, you haven't wasted your efforts. Don't let that affect whether or not you'll go to that person next time when you go down the street. Oh, that person rejected. So, you know, I met this person, and he seems to be the same kind of person, so he's probably going to reject. Don't do that. It's not wasted. You're persuaded. That's what Jesus means. You have an obvious life and message, and you just give it. Clear gospel, holy life everywhere you go. That is you saying, peace be to this house. You want the gospel? And notice the trust in the outcome. Whatever house you enter, (laughs) just go. Meet people, greet people, influence people. And if a man of peace is there, God is still saving. He's saying, when you throw the seed, I've got men of peace, people I want to save. I love that. I'm so confident then in in the gospel, so liberated. If there's a man of peace there, okay, I'm going to look for the evidence of the Spirit working in the heart. That's what I look for. Trust that the ministry is not wasted. And then notice verse 7 as we finish here. Stay in that house, eating and drinking what they give you, for the laborer is worthy of his wages. <laughs> this is interesting. This is, this is almost as if to say, be strategic. If somebody in that house it receives the gospel, you don't need to go to a place that has more money than that impoverished family so you can stage a bigger and wider ministry. Don't do that. Eat whatever they give you and and receive it with joy because that's God giving you the wages for your labor. He has met your need. And notice he says, whatever they lay before you. So you go there, you fellowship with them, you use that as your staging point. Why does he have to say that? Because that's exactly what we would do. We'd go into town and if we would stay away from the impoverished areas because they don't have gospel resources to, to do more ministry. 
Now, I love it when God moves upon a part of a person to whom he's given resources and you can accomplish a lot. But it is Jesus Christ that accomplishes those things. And even the Macedonians, Paul says, begged for an opportunity to give to the poor saints in Jerusalem out of their own deep poverty. And they gave more than all the rest because they were willing to sacrifice. You don't know what God's going to do. But I know what we would do. Try to go to the most optimum circumstance. Try to manufacture the most optimum sort of scenario. We try to, you know, make it easy, soft pedal the thing, serve up a softball. Surely they're going to accept. And by the way, if that person would come to Christ, we could use all their money and influence. Wow, what we could do for the gospel. Jesus is saying, look, you go in. You see the evidence of the Holy Spirit. You stage your ministry there and you spread it from there, knowing that God is the one who does the work. He does it. He's to be thanked for it. He's to be trusted for it. I love that. And look at the variety of work that he does. You you drive to friends' ministries and you visit people that are your friends and they're in other churches that are faithful to the gospel and faithful to preaching and gospel ministry, and you see different sizes, it shouldn't bother you. You shouldn't say, boy, I wish wish our church could be that big, do that much. Don't, Don't go there in your mind. You bloom where you're planted. You pour out gospel fervor where you're, where you're put by the Lord. You use that as the staging area because God has, has disciples there that need you. You trust him and thank him for the results because in his providence, that's precisely the work he's doing. In fact, Jesus may even imply here that you shouldn't be partial the end of verse 7 there, don't keep moving from house to house. What does he mean? Don't, don't be partial. Don't look for a better opportunity, greater comfort, or even more money. Don't do that. You say, why does he remind them in verse 8 again to eat what is set before them? Well, it's because now it's a different context. Verse 8 is whatever city you go to, you're going to have... You know, Jew and Gentile and different environments and different cultures, don't worry about that. Just sit down and eat. Verse 7 is more about whether or not somebody is impoverished and you want to look around for a better staging place. Don't do that. Let God do his work. He sometimes does it through the most meager resource, doesn't he? For his glory. But verse 8, he's saying, and when you go to a city, don't worry about what kind of culture is there. Just... Don't worry about dietary this and food that. Don't make it about your little preferences. Just do whatever needs to be done. Set aside all that stuff. You know, I said at the beginning that when we met in Orlando some 12 years ago and talked about training pastors, it wasn't really that we wanted to add a seminary to our church. It's just that every one of us had a heart for the kind of training we received in a common ministry philosophy where where Bible exposition was primary, submissive hearts to the Word of God was primary, mutual discipleship, a relationship of a church where there's organic life in the body that's for Christ, and and then you, you get equipped and you scatter to your various places. We wanted to train men to handle the Word of God to do that. But we wanted to do it in the midst of the local church. So as I said, when we went back to our respective ministries with all these ideas rattling around in our heads, it was such a tender, precious thing for me to come present it 
from, to our elders and then from our elders to you and have you say, are, are we worthy? We're not worthy of that. We don't deserve that. Would the Lord allow us to do that? I believe that this passage and many others demonstrate why God allowed it. And by the way, we became really in some ways a, a congregation to be watched as to how we pray for and, and uh, come around those that God raises up in our midst to go into ministry. The body life has become something to be watched, not because, as Todd said, it's perfect. It's not perfect, but because it's very real and genuine and passionate about the right things, upholding the right things as a corporate unit, body. And God has used that mightily so that now we have multiple campuses where we're training pastors. It's over 75 or so now and heading for, I don't know why. I mean, we don't need more students than that. That's plenty, but God just keeps sending students. Who are these students? Are they wanting to go to an academic institution? Nope. They want a church life, a real quality, strong place to be discipled in the local church and our task was to have pastoral shepherds who are theologian enough and skilled enough in the Word of God to be able to teach them how to handle it the same way. That was our task. You prayed for that, and it happened. So the Lord has raised up seven church campuses where there are seminaries, these, these training ministries. They're all pastor friends of ours. This last week, we approved an eighth in Winston-Salem, North Carolina. Pastor Kerry Hardy. Twin City Bible Church. This next weekend, we've been in months of discussion with another dear brother who's a longtime friend, and we're going up to Grand Rapids to look at the ministry there for potentially another place to train that we call expositors. Isn't that amazing? What is God doing? He's just using Grace Emmanuel as a staging point? Listen, beloved, we're in go mode. <laughs> And of course, it's going to poke the culture in the eye. How else are we going to get the gospel to the culture if they don't come running and say, you poked me in the eye? <laughs> I'm not deliberately trying to poke them in the eye. I'm too afraid for that in my own human resources. I'm too timid. But with the Lord, I'm in go mode, resolved, urgent, right? Persuaded. And we're preparing for gospel enemies because the light shines in the darkness, and the two are not in harmony. And that's how we understand our sin, and that's how we understand grace, and that's what we knew it took to save us, and that's how we understand the cross. Don't minimize that by trying to live comfortably between here and meeting Jesus. That's not the mode we're in. We're in the mode of the 70. 2,000 years later, we're another group sent out. And don't you just love the privilege of it? Of course there's peril. Of course it's a, a battle. Paul says, suffer hardship with me. Of course. But the privilege of that. I get up every day and I think, Lord, certainly today my ministry is over because you know me and you know my heart. Certainly today you will tolerate not another moment of weakness another fleshly attitude, 
another unkind word, an unforgiving moment of bitterness. Surely today my ministry is over. No. No. Because, as Paul said, we're struck down, but we're never forsaken. Why? So that the power may be of God and not of ourselves. If we were a perfect place, God would never get the glory. And we surely would try to take it all. So he makes us an imperfect place, but a great staging ground if we're in go mode. Bow with me. Lord, this is your mission. What do we have that we did not receive? Sometimes we act as though we didn't receive it, but came up with it on our own. And we get in your way. And then you have to remind us and chasten us and lovingly come alongside us and reshape and recalibrate our thinking as you did with the 70 as you sent them out. Lord, we, uh, we want to prepare. We know that days are coming, difficult days. Perilous times will come, you warned. And we see some of that birth pangs, so to speak. But you've also told us to entrust the work of your divine providence. You prepare us, you send us. And you told us beforehand so that we're not shocked and, and we're reminded about the temptation to want to get away from shining that light, the temptation to want to put it under a basket. That You've called us to be bright. And we know how dull we can be. Clean us up, make us holy. From the inside out, make us passionate, resolved, persuaded, convinced. Most of all, make us submissive to your word that we might love you as you deserve to be loved in the gospel. Thank you for saving us and using us. Encourage the guys tonight as we officially acknowledge what you've done to prepare them. It'll be a great time of fellowship. Help us to always remember that though perilous, this is privilege. Undeserved, unwarranted privilege. We ask it with gratitude in Christ's name. Amen.